please pray with me? Father God, our deepest need is to make our way back to you. You are our creator and sustainer, giver of life, the lover of our souls, and you have provided for us a way to make our way back to you. His name is Jesus. To which of the angels did you ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? But you have said that of your son, Jesus. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation, but Jesus sits at your right hand, and he is the means of our salvation. There is no other way that we might be saved from sin and brought into your presence than by the name of Jesus Christ. So God, we have come here to worship you in the name of Jesus, and in his name we boldly approach the throne of grace. In the name of Jesus, we ask that you complete the work that you have begun in us, the work of sanctification. Teach us to delight ourselves in you so that we might in you receive the desires of our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we intercede on behalf of our families, friends, co-workers, fellow students, and members of our local community. In the name of Jesus, we pray on behalf of the leaders of this local village, for our educators, first responders, medical workers, business leaders, and all who lead others, that they would do so in a way that honors you and benefits those they lead. God, in the name of Jesus, we give you thanks and praise for the blessings of living out our lives by your Spirit and the promise of everlasting life lived out in your presence following our risen Lord. God, now as we open your word, we pray that you would open our ears and eyes and hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, today we are diving into Hebrews 8. I know you've been waiting to dive into Hebrews 8, but uh, that's what we're doing this morning. And uh, it is, this chapter is about a heavenly reality that affects all of our hearts. Uh, today's message is part of a continuing series called Christ is Better, based on the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is a book that explores the riches of God's promises, connecting, but probably better than any other book of, of Scripture, connecting the dots between the New and Old Testament and tracing out this thread of grace that winds its way through Scripture. The more you read and understand about Scripture, the more you realize that there is really one big story that God is writing, even though the book is written over centuries by many different human authors. By the way, the uh, Gospel Coalition is doing a conference uh, this week based on Hebrews called Jesus is Greater. I don't know if that sounds familiar. They didn't steal the idea from me, but uh, if, if you are interested, I encourage you uh, to join them. I think they have online options as well on that. Um, now, uh, that Christ, if you're awake this morning, how is Christ better? That's fantastic. Greater covenant, high priest. <laughs> All right, this, this is fantastic. All right, we're going to get you up here. That's, that's great. Yes. What's that? Okay, all right. Oh. So some of the lessons that we've learned about uh, Christ's superiority in the book of Hebrews are these. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being through whom God created and sustains all things, including things we have yet to discover and things beyond our imagination. 
Uh, Jesus is the heir of all things. He is sovereign. His are the throne, the scepter, the oil of gladness, and Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. And if we were to compare Jesus to anything, as, as we just did a moment ago, uh, we would soon learn that Jesus is better. He's a better word than the prophets of old. Uh, he's in a better position than angels. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, but Jesus is a faithful son over God's house. Uh, Through Joshua, the people entered the land, but only through Jesus can people enter God's rest. Clearly, Christ is better. In Hebrews 8, I mentioned that we are learning about a heavenly reality that affects all of our hearts. The reality relates to two other ways Christ is better. Jesus is a better high priest, mediating a better covenant. That's what we're talking about today, is that Jesus is a better high priest, and he mediates a better covenant. Um, Incidentally, if you can get that TV working up there for me, I can see what everybody else sees. Uh, That'd be great. Um, So let's talk about Jesus as a better high priest. Uh, Hebrews 8.1. Now, the main point of what I'm saying is this. Don't you love it when somebody actually tells you what their main point is? We're getting it right here. We do have such a high priest. We've got the guy who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Here's the point. We have such a high priest. We've got the high priest we're looking for. We have the guy. Now, some might be thinking, well, I'm not even looking for a high priest. I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, we will uh, address that later. You may not think you need one, but everyone needs one. What type of high priest is this passage referring to? Well, in this book of Scripture, he is referring back to Hebrews 4.14. So this is several chapters back. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So from that verse and the following, leading up into the the place that we're at now, we learn that in his humanity, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness. Uh, Through his holiness and by his sacrifice, Jesus enables us to boldly approach the throne of grace. We all need Jesus because the throne of him, justice, also provides grace and mercy. That's important. Hebrews 7, Jesus was compared to this Old Testament character named Melchizedek. So Melchizedek only gets four verses in the book of Genesis, and he gets one verse in Psalm 110, but Hebrews gives Melchizedek lots of space here and a a full chapter, chapter 7. And like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood is not based upon genealogy, but unlike any other priest, Jesus' priesthood is based on his sonship and the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is a priest based upon the power of an indestructible life. And Hebrews 7.26, Jesus is the high priest who is holy, pure, separated from sinners, and exalted in the heavens. Uh, Hebrews 7.27, Jesus offered one time all-encompassing sacrifice. And Hebrews 7.28, Jesus remains a priest and son forever. So we have this high priest. 
That's the main point. This high priest that's being described, we have him. We've got the guy, and more importantly, he has us. So Jesus' character, qualifications, and work are such that he is the perfect and eternal high priest. This is important because God has put eternity in the souls of people. For eternal life, we need an eternal high priest. God has designed us to live beyond this human life that we have now. And in order to go into eternity in a good position with God, we need to have a high priest that is also eternal. So this is the point the author has been making in Hebrews 8.1. Now, the author identifies the location of Jesus' ministry. Uh, So where is Jesus' ministry located? Where are his headquarters? We know he's not confined to one place, but is it Capernaum? Is it Nazareth? We're pretty sure it's not the city of Chicago. Where is Jesus' ministry located? It's heaven, right? Jesus' ministry is located in heaven. Uh, His priestly work is completed. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And Jesus is seated in the sense that his work is complete. When someone sits down in scripture, their work is completed. And so Jesus has finished his work of redemption and is seated where? In heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. But he also ministers in the holy place, the true tabernacle set up by God. So that's where Jesus is. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But here is where Jesus is not. Uh, in Hebrews 8.3, it says, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. So Jesus will come into the heavenly sanctuary with something to offer. If Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest. There, there are already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. Well, let's start out with what a tabernacle is. Anybody know uh, what a tabernacle is? Tabernacle is a, what, you have not stayed in a tabernacle recently? Tent is? I, I, well, means, I don't know. Um, but this particular tabernacle is a tent that is set up for the worship of God. When was it set up? Well, it was set up in, uh, in the book of Exodus. We read about uh, the tabernacle being set up. So in Exodus 19 is when uh, the people come before Mount Sinai and God is coming down the mountain and the people are warned not to come up. Moses can come up, but don't let anything unholy touch the mountain. And they don't want to go there anyway because the mountain's shaking. It looks like a reverse volcano. And, and uh, so only Moses heads up and, uh, and he there receives instruction from God on the tabernacle and on the, uh, uh, the sacrificial system. Now, this particular system that we're talking about, that Jesus does not, uh, he is not the priest of this system, uh, one sacrifice was never enough. Had to keep on sacrificing animal after animal, and one high priest was never enough because these high priests had a habit of dying. They, uh, they didn't live forever, and so you had to keep on replacing the high priest as well. It was sort of a, uh, a temporal system here. But the purpose of this old system was to point to something greater than itself. 
We naturally try to understand what heaven's like by our experiences here on earth. We try to think of, well, maybe heaven's like something here. But actually, what we experience here, uh, especially in this idea of the tabernacle system, or our worship is patterned after what's taking place, the reality that is in heaven, because heaven is a more real place than what we experience here. And so um, those, the Old Testament priests, served at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. And so if if you've ever read past Exodus 20, so Exodus 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments, and then you get into this really detailed description of worship, uh, how, um, how people were supposed to, uh, worship under the sacrificial system, detailed description on the, the tabernacle, its furnishings, the construction. And if, if you have ever started reading scripture from uh, the book of Genesis, and th- I'm just going to plow all the way through this book and read it, Exodus 21 is where it all stops. Because it, it just, it's like you hit this wall this massive wall of tedious detail and, and you're like, what is this doing here? What does it mean? Why am I reading it? Doesn't God know that if someone who's not a Christian reads this thing, they're going to get stopped at Exodus 21? Why do you do this? But the reason why this information occurs in such detail in the Old Testament, going from Exodus 21 all the way through the book of Leviticus, The reason why that is so detailed is because it is patterned after the reality of what is taking place in heaven. When Moses went up the mountain, he didn't just hear the words of God. He saw what God showed him. God said, make it on earth as close as it can be to what you experience in heaven, which is like a child saying to a child, here, make a model of a jet airplane as detailed as you know how out of this mud puddle. You're not going to get it exactly. Shadow. Seeing a, a shadow, see the person, tell the, enough to sell there's a person and a dog or two people or whatever, but you can't get the details of the person. And, and that's what they're saying here in Scripture. This is like a shadow of the reality of what is to come. You get some idea of what's taking place here, but the reality is in heaven. And it's so much more immense, so much greater, so much more powerful than this thing that's been done on earth that would just blow your mind. But nevertheless, this earthly tabernacle is here for a reason because it points to something greater. It's a signpost pointing to something greater. So Moses was warned by God to make the best copy of what he'd seen but his efforts had to be necessarily small. Hebrews 1.6, in fact, the ministry of Je- that Jesus has received is as much superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. And we're going to talk about the new covenant in just a moment. And uh, in when we get to chapter 9, uh, we are going to consider the, uh, the inner mechanics of the upper, upper tabernacle. I, I thought that was kind of a fun way to say it. But the, the workings of that tabernacle that's in heaven are going to be described more perfectly in chapter 9. We'll be talking about next, uh, this next 
week, but what we need to remember right now is that heaven is real. It's a more real place than what we experience here on earth, and that that heavenly tabernacle is a place of power. It's a real place that all the other worship here points to imperfectly. I wrote the, uh, wrote and read this uh, the last week, but I think it's helpful. Heaven is a wonderful place, full of God's glory and grace. In this space called heaven, there's a garden, a river, and a city of God. It's a place where people will be blessed and God will be glorified because heaven is the place where God dwells. And making our way back to God is what Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And this is why we need a high priest, a heavenly high priest, and this is what all earthly worship points to. As it's said in the book of Colossians, Colossians 1.16, For in him all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. We're talking about Jesus. So that's the the perfect high priest, the better high priest, the, the one that God says, we actually have this guy. The one who created us, who holds all things in the palm of his hand. That's our high priest. The one who's king on the throne is also the priest offering us grace. Let's talk about this better covenant here. Uh, for there to be a new covenant, the argument goes, there had to be a problem with the first covenant. Hebrews 8, 7 says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. So what's the problem with the first covenant? Uh, Hebrews 8, 8, But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So here's the logic. Hebrews 8, 7, there will be no need for a second covenant if there's nothing wrong with the first. You cannot hang on to both covenants because the second covenant is better than the first. And, and 8, 8 says he found fault with them. Now, this, uh, there's a little bit of discrepancy if people believe different things about uh, he found fault with them. Are we talking about the law or are we talking about the people? Um, he found fault with the laws or found fault with the people. And uh, people uh, have different opinions on what's being talked about here. My friend David Jones, who knows Greek a whole lot more than I do, uh, believes it's referring to the laws. Um, but uh, other people uh, believe it's referring to the people. But then afterwards, both things are addressed. I believe that uh, there is a problem with the people and there are a problem with the laws. Um, back earlier in the book of Hebrews, uh, we learned about the, the wilderness generation, the generation that, uh, that is being spoken of here, that after they received the law, the tabernacle, in detail, ad nauseum, God laid everything out and he said, follow me, here's how it's all going to work. And this generation just went off the rails and they were in rebellion against God. They didn't trust him, even though they'd seen the miracles of God. They didn't, they didn't follow him as they should have. There's a problem with Gen W, and it's a problem of rebellion in the heart. Even though they received these stone tablets that first had been inscribed by God, Moses broke those ones, had to go back up and inscribe new ones. The these things, that, and God led Gen W rebellion. 
who were imperfect, pointing to a greater reality. He was pointing to something that was bigger and better. The old covenant was always supposed to point to the new covenant. So what happened with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai was a precursor to what God would do. The Lord rescued his people from slavery. He led them out of captivity in the promised land. He gave them a covenant to govern the relationship between him and his people. And the covenant was written on stone. At least the Ten Commandments were written on stone. And yet, um, here in uh, Hebrews 8.10... God talks about a new covenant. It's going to be written in a different location. It's going to be more effective than the old covenant. And he quotes a long text by Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds And I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Three major parts here that we have. We've got the mind and the heart. We've got relationship, and we've got forgiveness that's being spoken of here. Recently, just a a couple days ago, I was able to visit my son, and his his roommate was working on a project to fix leaky heart valves. This is a long project. He's working with a team, and they actually go through, do some surgery that goes up through the leg, and and, uh, he described in detail what, what was taking place there as far as how they were going to create this new procedure to fix fix hearts. He said, you know, it may sound invasive to you, but he said, I w- I've been part of open heart surgery, and open heart surgery, you have to, they break open the rib cage, they pull this device, and they open it all up, and he said, you know, I was, I was actually able to hold a, a human heart when they were going through this. It was just, you know, and he was describing this whole thing in process. And later, I was, I was reading something by uh, Kent Hughes, and he was talking about the, the person who actually uh, designed heart transplants, and so uh, the man who did heart transplants actually did a heart transplant on a fellow doctor, and they were discussing things, and as they were talking about the procedure and everything, uh, the doctor who did the transplant asked the other man, would you like to see your old heart? And so the man paused, and he said, sure. And so the doctor brought down the man's heart in a glass jar and handed it to him. And so he's holding his old heart, And he's looking at it, and he asked him several other questions, and then finally he looks at it and said, so this is what's caused me all those troubles. You know, that's what's being talked about here, that the heart in Scripture, um, God is going to replace our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh. The heart word happened with a physician to our heart. doesn't require the little person to open that chest and major heart surgery. And here, in this passage, it said, God is going to inscribe the new covenant on our hearts. 
those new hearts of flesh are going to have his living law written into them. The word of God is Jesus. Now, we talk about salvation as Jesus coming into our hearts. How often do we think about our chest being ripped open so Jesus can come into our hearts? We probably don't think too much about that, or our hearts being transplanted, or our hearts being inscribed upon. But that's what's being talked about here. We're going to get a new mind, the mind of Christ, a new heart where Jesus reigns, where he reigns with justice and he reigns with grace. Now, if you remember, the tabernacle is a tent. Remember the word, O hell. The, te- the tent, the reason why God was in a tent and not a temple, and eventually he was in a temple, but he even said, hey, this, you know, am I going to stay here? No, probably not. I'm, I move around. Tents can move around. So the heavenly tabernacle is not stuck in one spot. And when Christ reigns in our hearts, when our hearts have been transplanted and inscribed upon, we sort of become a mini tabernacle for God. We become that tent. And John 1 uh, says that Jesus came and he set up his tent of flesh among our tents of flesh. We live in a tent of flesh. And in this tent of flesh, God wants us to have hearts inscribed by him. He wants us to have the mind of Christ. And what this does for us is the second thing, knowing God experientially. No longer is a neighbor going to need to tell another neighbor, a person in the family, tell another person in the family, know the Lord. It's inscribed on your heart. There'll be a time when it's inscribed in all of our hearts. Now, I know as we, as, we, you know, as Christians, we think about we give our lives to Christ. Uh, in, in our tradition, we make a profession of faith. We say, you know, Jesus, I'd like you to come into my life. Forgive me for uh, my sinfulness. I want you to reign. I want you to be in charge of my life. I give my, myself to you, and we follow it up with baptism. But the reality behind all of that is that God wants to transform our hearts. And we begin there. But this process of cleanup of our lives and sanctification and righteousness continues throughout our lives. And in the end, our heart is going to belong completely to God, as will our minds. And that perfects our relationship. There won't be any relational issues between us and God, nor between us and other people. Amazing. And then, the, uh, if we can go back... Um, the uh, final one here is, uh, uh, back one more, is uh, forgiveness. So uh, what we receive is forgiveness for our unrighteousness. The NIV says wickedness, but our, our lack of righteousness is wickedness. We are not right in the way we think, the way we act. There, there are problems with us. We sin. We miss the mark. And and. God is going to forgive those things, says he will remember them no more, and, and this is, doesn't mean that God forgets all things, but it, it, it's, it's a way of saying it's gone. As far as the east is from the west, your sin is separated from you because of what Christ has done, because of the heart surgery, because 
my name is written on you. So that is what this passage is saying. And the last final verse tells us that by calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. The old stuff is always meant to point to the new. The earthly things that we learn about is supposed to point us to a heavenly reality. And the reality is that Christ is going to govern our hearts and our minds. And that that will fix all of our relationships. It will create uh, forgiveness, complete forgiveness, so that we can make our way back to God. Well, what do we do with all of this? And uh, I, I, uh, in Ezekiel uh, eleven nineteen says, I will give them an undivided heart, put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from them their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26, I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your old heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. Points in the journey. Uh, God, but wherever, so, uh, if you want to move that forward one here. Um, the problem with our heart is that we need an inscription. Let's go forward one more. And if we were to think of our hearts as a tabernacle, if wherever we traveled, Jesus traveled with us, inscribed on our hearts, in our minds, if we were to think of ourselves in that way, how often do you think of your body as a tent? And yet it is a tent. It's temporary. It's mobile. And in the center of it is meant to be the holiness and goodness of God. The beginning of your journey might look like, you know, I've never um, actually prayed to ask God to transform my heart. I might even be a little scared with this description of what that looks like. But, you know, people walk around all their lives and they, they don't know why they've got this malaise. They, they, they are out of breath. They're out of energy. They're just, you know, their lives are not as good as they could be. And yet, once they have the surgery, their lives are transformed. In the same way, spiritually, we might li- we're going to live in, in this malaise until God does heart surgery on us. And to perhaps begin that process would be to pray and to say, God, I want Jesus to be on the throne of my life. I want your name inscribed upon me. I want to find joy in living for you. And I give my life over to you. So that might be a a first place for you and your journey. And that would be followed up by baptism, which symbolizes going into the waters of death, coming out into new life. Baptism is an important um, part of our our faith. It is a a mark of obedience. Uh, If we are a Christian, then we do get baptized. There's a baptism at the end of June if you'd like to be baptized at LifeSpring Community Church can talk to us about that. Um, and then um, there's, uh, I, I have, uh, I'm going to start with prayer next. So being a, being a prayerful person and, uh, and, and spending time talking with God, uh, reading the word, those, those are ways to stay connected. Uh, the number three, an attitude of gratitude I want to talk about for, for just a minute here. This is something we're providing an opportunity for, but it's something I encourage you for. You know, uh, gratitude, the lack of gratitude uh, is one of the ways God describes the human condition. We do not give thanks to God. In Romans 1, that is God's chief complaint against humanity. 
We don't recognize God for who he is, and we don't give thanks to him. Therefore, whatever else happens. But giving thanks to God is so important for us. And by extension, giving thanks to other people is important as well. So at LifeSpring Community Church, we are going to, for the next four weeks, we're going to have four weeks of Thanksgiving where I'm, we're asking people at LifeSpring to write letters of, of thanks to, and then we've got a list of people from public officials, leaders in the community, uh, various people. Uh, and I encourage you to write letters uh, or emails to, um, to folks that are on that list. Please do. In addition to that, there might be somebody else God brings to mind that you ought to give thanks for. It might have been give thanks to your mom and dad for helping to raise you or someone you really friendly, I encourage you to God. Write down to God why you are thankful to him. What has he done for you? What is he like? Acknowledge him for who he is and what he's done and have this attitude of gratitude welling up in your soul because this is a spiritual discipline in order for us to grow, in order for God to be glorified. It's good for lots of reasons here. Well, I'm going to uh, close this in prayer, but uh, I, uh, I encourage you to remember um, this idea of, uh, of having a new heart autographed by God. Please bow your heads with me. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, that you put together this tabernacle through Moses that we could understand something of, of the need for sacrifice, the, the, your real presence amongst us, uh, the mobility of, of your presence. Father, thank you that it points to something uh, that we're just able to catch a little glimpse of now. But we pray that you would make us a tabernacle for your glory through Jesus. That our minds and hearts would reflect the word of God. That we would increasingly grow in your likeness. And that we would be people of great gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you've done. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.